0: Welcome coach, Tony, Tony Stubblebine on this podcast and interview series. Uh, Tony is the CEO of coach.me. He's the founder of better humans, better marketing and better programming on medium. And he is one of the most humble person that I have met so far. (laughs) Uh, Just an interesting question. And I'm not sure if you have counted this so far, just a ballpark figure how many lives have you impacted so far, positively?
1: Yeah, I, I didn't come here to be humble. Let's be clear about that. No, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I think um, there's some things that I think it's important to be humble about and we'll get into that, uh, but your question is really core to me, is I, I really do want to impact people's lives. That's the the major driving force and so if you say like i started my career as a programmer and i think a lot of the things i built didn't really go anywhere but i did write a book and uh, i think about a 100,000 people bought that book and that was my first taste of like hey i you know i taught something to a lot of different people and it's very niche but it you know the, for those people it was important mm-hmm. and you know our, our habit tracker now has been downloaded you know, a few million times. So that's a few million people that have used us to to build new habits. And then, um, you know, at a, at a much deeper level, the coaches that we work with go so much deeper with clients. So it's kind of like, what's the difference between um, someone who's building a habit of, uh, you know, flossing every day versus someone who has used a coach to start a new business and has, you know, changed the, you know, financial trajectory of their lives. That's pretty, pretty big. And so I think at this point, we've worked with about 30,000 clients as like, Mm. we've sold coaching to about 30,000 people. And, um, and then there's the publishing arm where, last year our articles were read 70 million times so now like you know so i've like thrown these numbers that are all all at different um yeah you know like levels you know sometimes it's like tens of thousands sometimes it's hundreds of thousands sometimes it's millions sometimes it's tens of millions uh but you know along the way one it's not uncommon not everyone says this but it we get it regularly enough that someone will say like, Hey, you changed my life. Sometimes people will say you saved my life. Right. I keep, um, usually these people are in addiction recovery and uh, occasionally they'll hand me, you know, their chip from AA and I keep these on my desk. I have like two on my desk right now that, you know, it's like, we helped them stay sober. And for them, they're, they're saying we really did help save their life. Um, so That's cool. That's good. Like that makes me feel like, Uh, I'm not wasting my time here. Um, And it's not just like, it's not just cool to do good. It's interesting. Um, It's just rewarding work top to bottom. And uh, I'm really happy that I ended up in in this field, I guess.
0: So conservatively speaking, if we have to put a number, easily more than 100 million people so far.
1: So uh, <laughs> Sounds good. I'm going to go with that. I mean, there's definitely a significant number of people. I mean, more than, more than I ever thought I'd be, more people than I ever thought I'd be able to reach in my life, for sure.
0: Because um, at any given point, and I, I can see, so whenever I give someone credit that, you know, they change my life a lot. Like, for example, in the last six months, I'll give that credit to you. Like, maybe not directly, but indirectly of what you're doing directly a lot, obviously, because we have had a couple of meetings, I remember. But apart from that, whatever you have started, uh, be it better humans or be it the coach.me platform. Uh, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But at any given point, I believe, you know, again, life is a multivariable equation. Mm -hmm. And at any given stage, there are multiple factors involved who may have influenced somebody's lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then again, it comes to like, are you again, making an impact or are you doing what you can yeah and i really like that one uh quote or one example that you mentioned somewhere in one of our meetings that uh you really believe that you are here to build vehicles for others improvements what are the ones you used
1: yeah i think that, that that's true this is the um uh the I mean, this is my mom giving me humility and context is the first time someone gave us one of these um, gave us their AA chip. Uh, I had spoken at a conference and I was on a panel and you know, usually after you speak uh, people will come up to you afterwards and that's actually my favorite part because it's kind of you're kind of disconnected speaking to an entire room but then that room filters itself to the people that really want to talk to you directly. And so once the talk is done, then you get to talk to those people. And so there's one guy who was hanging back, who has wanted everyone else to go first. And he was the guy who said, Hey, you know, for the last year, your app is what kept me alive. Like I use habits to keep, to maintain my sobriety. And I just like, I really want you to know you, you know, and I mean, he said saved his life. And you know, I was like it back in that time, I was like, I just think I'm building something cool and interesting. I had never had that experience before. It's the first time someone really like needed to get across to me that we had made an impact in their life. And so Um, and it gave me a chip as like the only thing he felt he could give, you know, as a gift. And I remember I I ran back to the office because it's not that I saved his life. There was a team of people, you know. I mean, it's not even uh it's not even like it's also he did a lot of the work. And that's part of the the um, you know, one of the things that coaches really understand and clients don't always understand, which is that it's coactive, is what you know, some coaches say, you need both people, you know, the coach isn't going to walk in the door and change your life, like the client actually does the vast majority of the work, the coach helps facilitate that change, but trust me, if any clients listen to this, it's like, it's not easy, they just make things possible for you, but you do a lot of the work, so really, he, he saved his own life, you know, from my kind of perspective, but I go back, I run back to the office to give credit to everyone, and I'm like crying, you know, I just... I, cause it, it caught me off guard and it was a really sweet uh, thing to hear. So I'm crying and i am telling everyone and it's like, you know, real, it was a real high morale moment for all of us. And then I call my mom afterwards. And what she said is, you know, and I told her like sort of both sides. It was like so powerful, but yeah. also I feel like he does did a lot of the work. And she said, listen, you know, it's not that you are like you did something uniquely special. So he needed a vehicle for change, and you provided a vehicle that, that worked, that, that was appealing to him, and that would get him from A to B. And, uh, and I just always t- took that as I took that a lot further as I've worked in this space more and more is that people are looking for different types of vehicles. And yeah. like this is one of the problems in the self-improvement industry. Is it's like someone comes out with like a new type of car and says all other cars are invalid and it's like people have preferences and for the most part all of these cars are functional vehicles. I think this is what's yeah. overhyped is that self improvement works for everyone, but what's underhyped is that if if you if you follow a plan, it almost always works. It's sort of like. Um, mm. You know, I say like most self-improvement kind of vehicles are going to work for about 10% of people. But for the people that choose that vehicle and go and drive it, there's probably about a 75% chance that it'll work for you. So it just, this creates all this confusion, right? And so this is maybe like what I'm getting at is the humility of it, of like, I know when I build something. That it's not going to solve problems for everyone in the world, and I. But I want to get it to that ten percent where like this is the thing that can be really powerful for you, and that's why we've ended up with kind of, you know, each each coach is in a way their own vehicle, right? Like you all have yeah. your own um, specialty, you all have your own persona, and so when I put two coaches in front of someone, I don't know which coach they should choose. Right? like I think they're both, you know, they both drive, uh, but the client has got some peculiarities about them that are gonna say, well, this person is really gonna motivate me, this person speaks to me. Um, and yeah, so that, that idea of like, tactically, what's my job? Yeah. My job is to put vehicles out in the world to help more people you know, drive from A to B, from where they are now to where they wanna be um I'm, we got real metaphorical there huh
0: yeah yeah and so I, I want to touch a little on what you mentioned you know like obviously you're not here to be uh, you know portray like uh what's the word i use uh, uh, be humble <laughs> but again you need humbleness somewhere i totally understand so what, what what do you think where do you need humbleness and where do you like not need being humble
1: Well, the core of coaching actually is a humility about knowledge, right? Like one of the big questions coaches kind of ha- always have to answer at some level is, coaching is not advising. Well, why is that, yes. right? Why is, it, why is it that coaching is not advising? It was because advising doesn't work as well as coaching. We wow. wish advising worked. Like we wish that, uh, that we could just outsource the decisions to someone else. And like, I would just constantly, I'm wishing that someone else had the answer so that I could be put at ease. Like, oh, finally I have the right answer. But the problem is that the right answer is contextual to your situation. So like, if I'm looking for business advice, what worked for someone else's business is not necessarily going to work inside of my business. And then it's contextual to the person. Like the advice giver took a, a path that played to their strengths. But yes. I need a path that's going to play to my strengths, and so if I get advice that is wrong for my business, it's really easy to give advice that's like, especially in like business advice, that's both wrong for the person's business and wrong for that person's uh, strengths. And so this is why um, coaching has so much facilitation in it. It's like you know, I'm like glossing over what it even means to say like play to your strengths, like the vast majority of advice is just not followed because the person who gets it just doesn't want to do it. Like they've got so much on their plate and like they're, they don't really believe in it. They're not committed to it. So they just don't do it. Right. And so when we say like a coach facilitates a change, one of the most like in practice, one of the most valuable parts of that is that it's a change that the client is planning to, to follow through on. And without action, there's no results. Right. And so Like advising is what we wished worked and coaching is what actually works. And we have to have humility as coaches that despite being expert facilitators, we do have advice inside of us, right? Like we have a way we would do it. We have a way we've seen other people do it. And we have to just constantly be putting on this cloak of humility of like, it's not my job to tell this person what to do. Um, even if I think I'm right, you know, that's like thinking is what gets you into trouble. It's like, I I know the right answer. I know the right answer. And also it feels good to have the right answer. It's like, validate me, validate me. Like, I want to tell you something smart, validate me. And uh, so like, we literally train coaches with the replacement habit, right? You have to go into a coaching session with curiosity because curiosity is the replacement for like the judgment and the The ego of like, of putting yourself into the situation, you know, demonstrate uh, how smart I am.
0: I I totally believe, you know, like honesty works here as well, because a lot of times, so again, this comes contextually, like sometimes when the client doesn't have any answer what they need to do. So sometimes, you know, like as a coach, you need to step up and say, you know, like in my experience, I have tried this and this has worked for me, but it's just Mm -hmm. one experience that I have. So would you like to try this? Or do you have any other plans that you want to try?
1: Right. Yeah, most coaches, most good coaches have a preamble. That's what I said, what I think you're doing there is you have a Mm -hmm. preamble before you give advice, right? Mine's more, even more aggressive than yours. It's like, I've got an idea. I'm not sure if it's right. Part of me wants to share it with you. Would you be open (laughs) to listening to it? And of course you don't have to take it, right? Like that's my preamble honestly. And then even when I give the advice, I say, like, I'll really put it in context of where it's coming from. Like I tried yeah. this because I, you know, I tend, these types of things tend to work for, with me or I've seen someone else try this. Um, but like that preamble is a big part of kind of the, uh, you know, nuts and bolts of coaching of, yeah. I mean, uh, Gwen who runs our support and is a ICF, a certified coach she you know, she explained it hmm. to me that in uh, traditional coach training they tell coaches never give advice ever never ever ever, ever. but <laughs> yes. it is but it's like it's almost like a necessary lie she didn't call it a lie but it, it's like a necessary lie because the the n- new coaches the desire to give advice is so strong in them that they have to be like told it's a rule never give it or else yeah. it'll like just leak out and it's once you become an experienced coach, Then they let you in on, well, of course you can give advice. Like you've coached (laughs) 20 different people in this exact same situation. You're a wealth of knowledge, but now that you have the balance, right? Now you can come in with, with like, Hey, like I've had clients try it this way, this way, and this way, here's how it worked out. You know, does that help you at all? Right. And, um, but for new coaches, it's just the impulse is overwhelmingly strong and you have to really, uh, uh, like I, on, I mean I am sort of hyperbolic sometimes but I say like one of the main values of coach training is to indoctrinate a coach into the idea that they're not an advisor mm. and that, like I hate yes. to see people just call themselves a coach out of the blue that they haven't been through that indoctrination they're not a coach they're advi- an advisor almost guaranteed um
0: and so yeah this is getting really common with you know getting uh with increasing internet in India specifically, where a lot of people have started uh, coaching others without themselves getting coached, first of all, yeah. or getting right. any training or anything in coaching. Then again, I totally understand that you don't need certifications in coaching, but I believe it's kind of like it's 100% requirement that you must have your own coach first. You must experience what yeah. coaching is. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah it it's um it, it's kind of a weird profession because you're right it's <laughs> like you don't need a certification it's not regulated uh, but on the other hand it like it it um it benefits from incredibly deep knowledge right yes. that it it's like to be a professional coach is the same level of professional as a lawyer or a doctor and i think but no one lets you be a doctor on day 1 and yeah. that's what like, is really weird. And it's not, uh, it's not bad that you can be a coach on day one. It's just sort of, it, is that, I mean, to be honest, so much of the value of coaching does come from basic things that, you know, um, uh, a piece of confidence that was instilled uh, in me by my mentor is that he would always say to me and the other coaches that I was part of this coaching group in, he would say, a thing to remember is that the client, that you're about to talk to probably has nobody in their life that actually listens to them, that like is truly there just to listen to them. And just that, that alone is very, very powerful. And so the kind of the, the experience of facilitating reframing uh, sequencing, pacing coaching, like that's all very, very important. And yet, you'll still get something really valuable from, from, a, um, from a new coach. And so I think that ends up actually mostly being confusing to the coaches who yeah. think, oh, well, I don't need training. And it's like, well, I think you should start right away because you should start coaching as soon as you can because the training will make more sense to you.
0: But yes. on the other hand,
1: I, I absolutely don't think anyone should skip the training. The training is uh, so important to being a great coach And then kind of, if you want to make a living, the only way to make a living is to be a great coach because so many of the business loops inside of coaching uh, rely on uh, testimonials, basically. Testimonials and referrals. Like uh, individual coach lives off of testimonials and referrals. And if you're not coaching at the level that generates those, then you'll never have a business and so, uh, yeah i just um, what i forget what, what the question was but those yeah. were some things that i wanted to say
0: <laughs> no no make sure the train of thoughts actually connect so uh, one thing uh, i'll also share my experience but what do you what do you have seen most of the coaches or what's the reason according to you why most of the coaches struggle with their coaching practice
1: uh, yeah I mean, most coaches do. I think we—that's fair to say, right? That, yeah. um, uh, there. I mean, I, I, I ruminate all the time. I wonder why. Are, why are these people failing? Why are these, you know, failing? Yeah. I don't mean it in a judge, like really judgy way. It's just like if the goal is to have a business, and you don't, then you fail to have a business, right? Like, why? Yeah. Why doesn't it materialize for so many people? And I mean, it's tricky because it, it's also you find that people come into coaching, 5% of the, their heart wants a business and 95% of them are just curious, right? And so they walked away yeah. with a new school skill and maybe, and that's for them, that word failure is really kind of off because, yeah, you know, they've got another career. Why, how did they fail? You know, like they learned something and they had fun, right? Um, but it's like, it's muddy because they won't know for sure until they find out how, how much work mm. is really required to build a business. So I almost rather just flip it and say, well, what's required to build a healthy business? And uh, you have to treat it like a business. And that's what we think in the coach.me platform is, we do some training to help someone be a better coach but for the most yeah. part, we think our job in the coaching e- ecosystem is to help them run a coaching business, yeah. and um, that's where like the um, the mastermind group that I think you're in with Kendra is like you know I sat in uh, as a guest facilitator one week and I was like right these are the coaches that are doing the work of a business and so I mean you could go back to just the most basic stuff like if you've ever seen. Um, like a, like a video game or something about running a lemonade stand, right? It's just, you don't <laughs> yeah. just make lemonade, right? You put signs up around the neighborhood. You experiment with pricing. Uh, yeah. Like there's, that's a business. And so the coach has to, I just, I see too many coaches who do one side or the other, where they're mm. either just doing the marketing, but not really paying attention to, the skill of coaching or they just do the skill of coaching and don't do the, the marketing. And so, so then, you know, my focus then is much like there's a lot of coach training out there. We do this very specialized habit coach training, but we're not like trying to reinvent the entire, you know, yeah. world of how to be, how to do the act of coaching. Uh, we spend much more time trying to get coaches to build their business and I think then the thing is, there's too many sales channels available to you. Yes. And yes. people mistake thinking they have to be active in all of them rather than do enough <laughs> to get traction. The only thing that matters is traction in one sales channel. If you have traction in one channel, you're yeah. good. You don't need a, you know, like, like, you know, like, should our business be on TikTok? I mean, it could be on TikTok, there's a sales channel on TikTok, but like we have other sales channels and like we need to, that are still growing or are still materializing or are still trying to get traction. So, uh, that is,
0: um, uh, I think
1: that's kind of the other pieces. Yeah
0: on the similar line of thought, because I wanted to, you know, ask you about this. I really loved that one thought of yours that marketing is your responsibility. And because I have had a, I I don't know, maybe you have used a little different words than this, but I I have had a a career in digital marketing and I totally see uh, when I became a coach, I was like, you know, 20% already using my previous skills. I already had enough you know, uh, experience of marketing yeah. and all that stuff. I had a pre-existing audience. So I see a lot of coaches, uh, again, maybe just in my environment, but I have seen, I have been connected to coaches overseas as well. So uh, marketing is something, as you mentioned, you know, like going through multiple sales and or not maybe paying much attention to it. But then again, when we go through that mindset, that marketing is a responsibility, it kinds of It's really empowering for me.
1: Yeah, is Uh, it? Why do you think it's empowering for you?
0: So again, one of the things, if you see I need to do marketing in order to build my coaching business versus I want to do marketing because it's my responsibility.
1: Got it. It's interesting. You probably, I'm blanking on the phrase. You you have Uh, written it on Medium somewhere.
0: You have written it on Medium somewhere that, uh, I, I, again, I might be using. I might Moral
1: obligation.
0: Yeah. 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 That's a phrase.
1: <laughs> I love that. I, I, I'm glad that resonated with you. Um, this is like a perfect example of how, like, kind of self improvement vehicles don't work for all people, but everyone kind of needs something different. And th- that article was definitely a coach's article. So it's marketing is your moral obligation. And then I make the case to people who have useful products, which coaches have useful products, that if they don't do the marketing, a less useful product will end up in the consumer's hands. So if you have a good product, it's your moral responsibility to make sure that people use you instead of the lesser product and, I, and it, what I'm, the reason I say it's a coach's article is because I'm trying to do a reframe because a lot of people think sales and marketing is about um, immoral manipulation, right? It's like the used car salesman is trying to sell you a lemon and is using a bunch of psychological tricks to put you into a car that you don't want, to sell you something you don't want. And so we do a couple of different reframes for people who... Uh, kind of tell themselves these stories about marketing as a way to yeah. justify not doing it. So marketing is your moral obligation is one, but I think often the the more successful one is, cause like the reason that's not that successful, I think is because uh, people are, a lot of people are already past that. Like they've just realized I'm not gonna eat, I'm not gonna make rent if I don't market, right? So they're like already <laughs> convinced that they should, they're just afraid yeah. it's not going to work for them. And so we use this one from one of our coaches, uh, Patrice Madison, we use all the time. Um, uh, we say uh, sales is about sorting, not convincing. And you know, it's like, if you go into a conversation with a potential client thinking your job is to convince them to hire you, you put all of this pressure on yourself to do things that aren't natural. You know, If you think a coach is a, someone who is naturally of service. And now suddenly you're trying to make someone do your bidding, you know? It's like, I'm gonna make you hire me, right? Like that again is like kind of that misunderstanding about what sales and marketing is because they only heard the most extreme, awful cases of it. So Patrice like has the the opposite approach. He's like, there's a hundred people in front of you. Seven of them uh, like have a problem that you can solve. And you just need to talk to all 100 of them to find out which one of them, which ones of them are in the, they have a problem you can solve. So when you're talking to someone and they have a problem, but it's not one that you solve, they're not saying no to your sales tactics. They're You're just saying, oh, they're in the no bucket. Oh, and this other person is in the yes bucket. But these three people in a row, they're in the no bucket too. No, 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 no. Just like constantly like, like um, yeah. that's a no. And I don't know. I mean, I like I always hesitate to make like dating analogies, but this is like very like <laughs> Tinder-esque, right? Yeah. Like if a person is not attracted to you, they like good, you sort them into the no, right? And and it's not like, you know, there's a whole world of dating, you know, like really creepy dating advice that's yeah. about convincing like. You can, I can point at any girl and make her like me. And it's like, Tinder in a way is much healthier because it just like, <clears throat> it, it helps people get into that mindset of we're just, we're filtering. You know, yeah. the, it's like, the, it's a filtering exercise, at least at the beginning. And so sales is the same way. It's a I filtering actually,
0: exercise. If I could, you know, like mention the, uh, <coughs> so recently one of my friends was uh, going to try Tinder and uh, so mm-hmm. what i've seen from my experience is a lot of girls especially in india don't have their tinder bio or it's empty it, it but still yeah. because you know like normally again I'm, i need to generalize a little bit uh yeah. guys are a little desperate so even when they don't have a bio they'll still swipe based on their pictures right right so uh, she did not have a bio and this is something that i mentioned to her that you know what you just don't want to attract Everyone, you also want to repulse who is not supposed to be your ideal match. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, and right. I believe it's uh, it's you know the kind of same I mean, in uh, it's same in coaching business. I remember Kendra saying that uh, she kind of repulses everybody who does not look leadership as a privilege to serve others. And.
1: That's she, she right. I mean, yeah, that,
0: yeah. You're exactly right. Okay, so uh, um, if if we can just you know like uh, go on a tangent on this part, uh, what has been your personal experience in coaching? So I remember you mentioning that you were a programmer before starting any of this coaching part. So how did the programmer became? Okay. Like an entrepreneur
1: in this a coach. Yeah. Yeah. Um there's sort of I think first of all, I'm a behavior designer first before I was a coach. Okay. And I got into it because again, this is like an unregulated field. And I <laughs> thought I could build something useful. And people and the market said, you know, like I got credentialed by the market. The market said, Yeah, we like this. This is useful, right? And the way I got into it is that I'd been a programmer kind of going from job to job to job. I kept wanting more um, impact. And I, I guess, you know, some people are born with an innate sense of mission. And I think I was just born more normal. I wanted, um, uh, I just wanted stability. I wanted to feel personally successful. And so, you know, for me, it was, I mean, I was always kind of in this like achievement track, but it that like get into the right high school that would get me into the right college that would get me a job. And so I was like very much like I need a job so that I have money. And then I had a job and I had money and I just was like, maybe I was just like a little bit too curious. And I kept wondering, all right, they're paying me, but what is it that we're accomplishing here. And I just couldn't get a good answer to that. So I switched to a more interesting company and then a more interesting company. And I just like always a little bit dissatisfied where I felt like what's tricky in startups, which is where I ended up, is that you're in a portfolio world. I've never really heard people describe it this way, but you're in a Mm -hmm. portfolio world that makes sense to the investors. The investors invested in 30 companies and Three of them are going to be big successes, and therefore the investor is a success. Mm. Those other 27 companies, everyone wasted their time. Right. And so I'm like, well, I'm here, I am like down in the trenches. And if I'm not careful, I could go my whole career like kind of in an economically rational world that where the investors are making money, but nothing that I did mattered. <laughs> And that yeah. just freaked me out, and so I just started looking for, you know, how can I take have more control over doing work, where every day I feel like I'm glad I came to work, this mattered today. I don't have to yeah. wait on some theoretical outcome down the road, and um, and that's where you know through that self reflection I started to realize well the thing that I'm always curious about, like I've always been curious about everywhere in so many different angles is I'm curious about people's limits. I'm curious about what, what are you, you know, to you, what are you capable of? Like, you know, here I met you as like a very young coach, the beginning of your career. And like, I mean, this is a lot of pressure to put on you, but like, I'm imagining, what are you going to be like in 15 years, you know? Like, I'm just, yeah. and it like, it gets me really excited. And I imagine that for myself. Like if I do, if I really commit myself to something, what can I be in five years yeah. or 10 years? I'm just very curious about that and that it turns out is like a big part of i guess my brand is i'm not out to fix anyone like i know that people are hurting and or people are ashamed you know like oh you know i feel so bad that i'm fat or i feel so bad that i procrastinate like holy crap the shame around procrastination is so intense and i just like i i just feel like for the most part we try to run a shame free environment like okay I hear you that you're feeling shame, Um, but I don't care. Like, I am just coming at it from curiosity, like, um, uh, uh, you know, on procrastination, it's like, it's actually curious, could you you do less, yeah.
0: It's actually the same in any kind of uh, porn industry, be it productivity porn, or be it hustle porn, or be it, you know, sexual porn, that (laughs) the- the results that you are getting or what you do after you know watching those pawn or getting invested in that pawn yeah. is not necessarily too bad but it's a lot you know like people feel ashamed of it
1: uh huh
0: like yeah. like again yeah, pawn I- uh, i'm sorry uh, so you know like uh, even yeah. even when we talk about the typical pawn industry uh sometimes porn has proven to be uh, beneficial. Like it calms down your nerves and all that stuff. Medically, sometimes it has helped you. Masturbation again is a healthy activity, but there's a lot of shame around it. (laughs) And likewise, when we talk about productivity porn, uh, this again, when you invest too much, being trying too hard on being productive and you procrastinate a little bit, there's a lot of shame around procrastinating.
1: Yeah. So I, for the most part, I try to like keep myself out of like the like sort of porn and sexual habits because it's like it's too hard. I just, that's a humility thing for me. Like it's too hard to navigate like all of the strong feelings people bring to it. Um, but productivity porn is absolutely think something I think that I can help people feel like. I mean, the self-help, is like the self-help section in a bookstore is like you're embarrassed to go there and it's like, but you're (laughs) okay going to the crafting or needlepoint or auto mechanic, like any other hobby is okay, but this hobby of seeing what, you're capable of is not okay somehow. I just I just I really like reject that. like yes, we w- often we want to do something for really practical reasons like you're in pain, we want that pain to go away. Yeah. you're unable to meet your commitments. We want to help you meet those commitments. but we're like never want it to just be um, uh, you know you suck. And we can, we can fix you, you know, <laughs> Like that's just yeah. not, I, I just think that's such an awful way. And, you know, for, <laughs> I guess, you know, you're giving me a bunch of examples, but I feel like for me and my kind of age group where we've really became aware of that was this idea of Cosmo magazine of like body shaming was like kind of an idea that came from that magazine where people are like, you know, it's presenting this lifestyle that's unattainable. Right. Mm. And so like in Better Humans, this is a discussion we had the other day where we publish a lot. I love when we publish something something for a person who loves the gym and is curious. How low can they um, drop their body fat? How like how can they use fasting and like you know carb manipulation in order to really push the envelope of what their body is capable of? But on, I love that we have a publication that can say that. But then we yeah. also publish Reagan Chastain, who like basically coined the term "fat activist" or "fativist." Who's mm. uh, this? Is like this is her word. She's fat, very fat, okay. and um, and you know her thing is the world is just telling fat people the only thing that you should be doing right now is trying to lose weight. And she was just like big middle finger. Fuck you. Like, I can like, I want to dance. I want to train for a marathon. Like, like, like I like you're preventing like kind of the narrative prevents fat people from being happy until they've lost weight. And she's like, it's the reverse. Like, first of all, being happy is often a precursor to losing weight. And also just being happy and fat is better than being the what's actually going on for most people which is miserable ashamed and fat and so i just like i love that we can kind of when we can meet someone where they are and say like whatever it is that you're curious about achieving like we want to go on that ride with you and so you know i just like i know she's such a great example to me because i know people like look at her and just like you know girl get your shit together you gotta lose some weight right and uh but it's like meanwhile she's like one of the most successful people I know. Right. It like, you know, like I don't have the time to train for an Ironman. I don't know. She, you know, she ended up not making it, but it's like that she can take on these challenges and uh, live a happy and, you know, impactful life. She's impacted a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. it is like, I see the world more that way. Right. And um uh so yeah i mean that's where it goes back to the kind of the curiosity and being how do how do we be both high performance and shame free and yeah. that we just have to let people choose their own goals you know
0: and um, what i usually uh, you know uh, write about that we need to create our own balance in improvement and acceptance and that's exactly yeah. uh, exactly probably what right I mean. uh, so i have uh um, to be honest, I've been there, you know, uh, feeling really ashamed and struggling with losing weight and being happy and all that stuff. I don't know. Anyway, I yeah. probably don't want to go there. <laughs> uh, here's something that I uh, <laughs> here's something that I uh, do want to uh, talk about. So uh, you have mentioned this. Uh, sometime uh, about your partner Sarah and because Mm. I talk around relationship most of my audience is in their 20s who is this uh, millennial generation of struggling relationships Uh, so what is your take on that and I know that you have a, a kind of not fitting in a box kind of relationship is that what we can call it
1: yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that sounds like a certain things. I mean, let's like actually say, so I, it's, I think there's a couple of things about our relationship that are important to know just for context when you're like looking yeah. at my life. One, we intentionally don't have kids. So anyone that's taking productivity advice from me has to understand <laughs> that I like, we've gone through our lives with like two professional incomes and never the overhead of kids. So mm. like, some of the stuff that I'm up to is just stuff that a parent would never have time for. Um, and that's, you know, I think there's a tendency to like really like compare yourself to someone. And if anyone's ever yes. like comparing themselves to me, they, like they have to understand, like I'm on the easy level there, right? Or Sarah and I are on the easy level there. Um, you know, it's, our relationships are, are tricky in that I mean, I love listening to a good relationship coach, you know, or there's a, there's a show I think you can get through, um, uh, um, through Amazon, I think, called Couples Therapy. And it was like mm-hmm. a real therapist and, and a bunch of couples let themselves be filmed. And oh. so just Ooh. to like <laughs> see, see that progression and it, you know, it's like, and, and then you're like pointing out things that you're like, oh, we have that pattern. We have that pattern. We have that pattern. Um, and, you know, it's like one pattern is, you know, fu- you know, sort of you couples have different feelings about uh, responsibility and, you know, usually that ends up being money, you know, like you're kind mm-hmm. of like how, mu- how much risk, you know, what pace, you know. And you have to kind of work to balance that out. But then again, like Sarah and I are on easy street because we're both, you know, have good earning potential and we don't have a yeah. lot of financial pressure on top of that. So like a lot of the conflict that would be in a relationship we didn't have because of, of that. Yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, I, but that's, I just have a suspicion and this is one that like, I think everyone should take with a grain of salt, but okay. like, this is my suspicion from watching other people is that it just seems to me that the couples that work out, they work out because both of them want it to work out. Yes. And yeah. I can't explain what even that means in practice, but it's like, if both of you want it to work out, you'll do the work that's required to make it work out. And if only one of you wants to, it to work out, then it, eventually that person will generate so much resentment that they'll give up. But if like both of you are like, hey, this is a problem and I want to solve it. I'm willing to do some work. Absolutely. I'm going to try to get you to do most of the work. But it, <laughs> like worst case scenario, I'll do it, you know. Yeah. Uh, if both of you are in that mode. And so, th- again, this is just like, I think these were the preconditions of the hmm. relationship is that Sarah and I met when we were uh i guess i was 25 so you know young and um uh and we've been together 16 years we don't have kids for all intents and purposes like we look married but we're not like we own two properties together we're we've owned two cars together maybe more than that no just i guess the two cars we're on our second (laughs) dog together we're our you know there's a lot of paperwork you can do to make it appear like you're married. Like I have, um, power of attorney for legal things for, Mm -hmm. we have that for each other. So like, Mm -hmm. I can make medical decisions for her, um, and vice versa. We're on each other's wills. So a lot of the, in America, a lot of the legal things that would come with a a marriage, like we just put those and stuff, that stuff in place. Um, and, um, uh but you know i think you know i think we're 16 years in yeah and yeah so it's amazing to me that we're still together you know but i and i know that we worked hard to make that but i also like this is maybe one of those rare moments of humility i know that our mindset was to both do that work and if and we don't we can't we can't credit having that mindset with for, to anything other than just luck. So we just came into it, you know, being people that I think we're going to stay together. So with uh, a lot of work.
0: A lot of work, (laughs) more work than you, uh, so what's something that you always say? uh, More work than you... uh,
1: Than you want, less than you fear.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) More work than you want, less than you fear. I mean, it it is, it's (laughs) like, um, is a completely reasonable amount of work, yes. but it's just a lot of it. And you know, I think a lot of people think success is impossible because they like they can't fathom that amount of work. And then a lot of other people are looking for some easy way. You know, like what's the one trick I could give everyone that will lead to a rewarding relationship? And it's like, no, oh, there's not one <laughs> trick. There's yeah. hours, so, hours sorry. of work.
0: Uh, As you mentioned, you know, like you are not married. Do you plan to get married? Or, you know, like, what's your take on...
1: Probably not.
0: What's your take on... uh, Uh, What's my
1: take on marriage?
0: Pros and cons of getting married.
1: Um, First of all, uh, I mean, this might generate a tangent, but... Uh, and I don't even know if you know this, and this is why I didn't want to set the expectations for being humble. Uh, so I don't think you know I'm uh, the world's most successful wedding minister. Uh, mm. I've done six weddings, no divorces. So I have a 100% success Whoa. rate, more than 50 years of combined marital bliss. I'm not even sure they've, there's been an argument. Well, I don't know for sure. But there's no divorces. I <laughs> so just want to make that clear. If you want to get married and stay married, you want me as as your, your wedding minister. I love weddings. Uh, I love, um, I mean, I just love the public display, you know, the proclaimment of like, there's something about the ceremony that's actually very emotional and powerful. And I do actually think done well, it it does bond people together. Um, And I love being involved in, you know, it's been a huge honor to be asked a couple of times I, I did both of my sister's weddings and uh, one of my best friends from uh, uh, from high school. It's only recently that basically strangers started asking me. And I was like, okay, let me do it. Um, now it's uh, public. Uh, you can it's, always, expect... it's always a...
0: It's going to be public. Sure. Expect more, <laughs> you know, ask requests.
1: <laughs> well, I finally think I figured out how to be good at it. Like I, it's a little bit, I have more of a system. The first time I did it, I was really it was a lot more stressful but i now i know i have the parts of it more uh, systematized um so i love i mean i love weddings and i would encourage everyone to get have one um I, you know i think just sarah and i for whatever reason maybe i think cuz actually we're busy that that we're like <laughs> we're this com- this bad combination of busy in particular yeah. so it's like if we're going to have a wedding well First of all, that's its own trick because we're both particular in different ways. So it's like, if we're gonna have to have a wedding, it's gotta be great. But my version of great, is not the same as her version of great. So it's just a lot of work to even like plan, like even agree, even to get to agreement would be a lot of work. And then, I mean, in America, the way we do weddings here is like, you know, you drop the same amount of money that you put on a down payment on a house and you spend Mm -hmm. almost an entire year on it. So I can't think, I can hardly think of a single year where Sarah and I weren't deeply involved in something extracurricular that would have made like planning a wedding, like for either of us really difficult. And I think, you know, so then what it really comes down to uh, is like, it's not, um, neither of us are very motivated by these sort of social, societal milestones, right? Like, You know, some people think, you know, like that's what defines your life. It's like you graduate, you get married, you have a kid, you buy a house, you know, like you get married in there, right? Like these are important milestones to signify that, Hey, things are going all right for you. Right. Yeah. And we just like kind of both people that choose our own path. And so of those, we did, we did both graduate from college and, um, did buy houses but they were much more like on our own terms. And I think, you know, it's like, if you actually get to the core this is why for us, mm-hmm. we're not willing to like push through the barriers that would lead to getting married. And Sarah would tell you a slightly different or maybe completely different story. But, you know, I think, you know, like let usually start, I, let, one let's or both talk- people, yeah. yeah. Go ahead.
0: Let's talk about this only. When was the last time you had a discussion about this topic with Sarah?
1: In the last couple months, I'm sure. I mean, it's come up. Uh, In which, you know, she says that she just doesn't like it's offensive to her to have the government involved in her love life. (laughs) Okay. Sure. So there you go. So that's her answer. But it's sort of like, you know, if it was like, some people, it's such an important milestone for them that you know, and I think if I was one of those people or if she was one of those people, then we would be married. You know, it's like, mm. you know, like I promised, you know, if one of us had promised our parents that we would, you know, have a great wedding, then I think we would have probably have pushed through this uh, resentment of government involvement in our lives, you know. Is, we, is it okay that's I... something that can be overcome? <laughs>
0: Sure. Yeah. Is it okay if I ask one more question about this? So, sure. uh, let let's say you get married after a year, and you know, like, the life proceeded from there, versus you don't get married. Yeah. So, you know, like, is there something that you might be missing?
1: No, I mean, it's like literally getting married would do nothing for us, other <laughs> than, like, I actually, I, you know, I for a while, I was trying to wear one of those aura rings. So it's like that track your sleep and stuff. And it, it just really bothers me to have things on my fingers. You know, <laughs> like, like I can only think of things that would get worse for us if we were to get married. We would actually pay more uh, based on the, how the tax system works here. We're in a tax bracket that would pay more in taxes I'd have all this pressure to wear a wedding band that probably would be super uncomfortable for me, would have wasted kind of a, a year of wasted. You can see even how my mind works. It's like yeah. wasted a year of planning and, and a huge chunk of money, you know? And uh, I just, I mean, this is one, like I think Sarah and I are pretty good at figuring out what fits us. And I just have to be careful not to promoting our life to other people and promoting yeah. choose a life that fits you. So other people should get married and you should have me as as your minister if you do get married, obviously. <laughs> but um uh you like I'm not like I'm not it, telling other people they shouldn't. I just for it's, us it's not it's not for it's,
0: it's actually so so typical of coaches to do this kind of a thing. I do not do journaling a lot. Yeah but I have my clients do this because yeah. I know how powerful it is. <laughs> I don't do it, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: but you know, yeah. uh, anyway, so uh, another Great. question on, on the same, uh, uh, same thoughts, uh, has it ever happened that, uh, any female clients or some, you know, customers or something like that came up to you and flirted with you. And if they asked you like, are you married, how do you respond?
1: oh, this is, I'm lucky, and the, but this is actually something I often worry is not in our training. Um, uh, coaching is really personal. Like you have a like a real personal. connection with someone yes. and it's like, it's hard. It's it, w- it would be easy to misinterpret that. And it does, yeah. it happens in therapy and I'm sure it happens in coaching. So let me just tell you something you're probably going to think is a little bit gross, but it's like, was really valuable to me. Okay, When I was... Uh, Fourteen, my mom and I we're looking for some uh, something to do to give back, like some community service to do. And what we settled on was volunteering for Special Olympics, which is this organization that does sports for um, handicapped people. And so, for all of high school, basically, the two of us were coaches in the local Special Olympics basketball team, and it was a big group of people, like a big group of athletes, and. A uh, big group of coaches too. And we really, that was a really good experience. But I remember new coach orientation day, the head of the, that chapter of Special Olympics said like point blank, "You ha- all coaches have to be careful not to sleep with the athletes. Yeah. You cannot have sex with the athletes. They, and you, you're surprised that I'm telling you this, but these athletes are adults who have, you know, have sexual urges and they will flirt with you and they will come onto you. And it's just like, and for obvious reasons, you can't, you have to be prepared ahead of time. But here I am, 14 or whatever being like, people sleep with, you know, like handicapped people, what the hell, right? You know, because I hadn't even met the athletes and I was thinking they're all going to be in wheelchairs or something, right? I mean, the whole thing was like, So, like, jarring to me at that time, like, you know, it turns out, by the way, I I don't know if they still use this terminology. I'm actually a little bit worried. This is not, like, might have become kind of offensive, but, like, our team had what they called high functioning and low functioning. So, like, low functioning was what you, the stereotype, right, of someone that really appears Mm. handicapped. Mm. High functioning were people that were more athletic than I was, but they just, you know, kind of, something was going on in their head, that you know they weren't ever going to do complicated drills. We weren't ever going to teach them plays, but their skill set, you know, they could a, a basket as good as I could. You could know, and you like you really see it. You know, it's like physically they look the same as anyone you would meet on the street. So I just thought that was great indoctrination early on i got that really early on and then later i had this experience this awkward social encounter where um, someone who is really into meditation uh, mm-hmm. and like had started like teaching other people meditation okay. like leading meditations but was basically a noob mm mm-hmm newbie, you know, like yeah. in for like six months or something, right? I said, hey, you know, why don't you come to my meditation? Uh, you know, my office is like a wild startup perk, but my office was inside of Medium's office and Medium was bringing in Will Kabat-Zinn, who is like oh. a big name in meditation and his dad is an even bigger name. Yeah, It's Jonathan Kabat-Zinn as his dad. So this like the person who like sort of brought mindfulness to the Western market And his son, you know, then his son, who like speak, is like leads meditation retreats at the big meditation centers in in the US, was just randomly teaching a meditation class inside of this startup. And I would go to it all the time and then talk to Will afterwards. And Will was my favorite people. And so I brought my friend, thinking, like, this will be a good experience to you. And my friend did the ballsiest thing. Um, he said to Will, he's like, hey, you know, I'm like really into this. I want to teach this. Like if uh, if you're ever sick, could I fill in for you? And Will is like, oh. just gave him this look of like, what the fuck are you thinking? Do you know how much training I've had? You know, like you just see it all on his face. Like and this is like a very Zen guy, but he's like, "Do you like? I spent like 10 years in a monastery. <laughs> I've been teaching this for like 30, you know, <laughs> like my dad is John. And you think because you're excited about meditation that you can in, you know, one of the things I like about Will is I've actually, I've seen him get upset more than once. And one of the things is you see the meditation kick in where he'll just like reflexively, yeah. there'll be this pause and he'll self-reflect and then he'll, you know, it's like that pause. That is what, that's what the, med- yeah. That's actually is. It's not that you don't have feelings. It's that you have different kind of ways of, processing these feelings, and, uh, and so, you know, Will kindly told them, no fucking way, <laughs> like, zero chance, go away, right, <laughs> and afterwards, I, I apologized to Will, I was like, I didn't know that was going to happen, uh, what, and he goes, and I, and I said, Will, what do you think will have, would have happened if he, you know, if he was, um, you know, if he was teaching a class, and he, and zero hesitation, he said, oh, he would sleep with the students, oh and i was like so shocked that that answer came so quickly right and this is again this goes back to the value of professional training is like yeah you think because you understand how to do one or two things well that you're ready and the reality is that like you're not ready because you don't know how to avoid a bunch of pitfalls. And like, this is why training is important. So I can tell you that it's not a big issue in our world. Like, uh, you know, in all this volume of coaching, we get an enormous number of complaints about coaches. I mean, it's like, I see all the complaints, you know, so if we're doing this much, you know, this much coaching, you know, there's going to be that much, complaints and i'm where i see all of them and to me that will feel like a big none of it is about like um uh coaches overstepping their bounds and i feel like very uh or coaches not understanding that boundary right mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a position of power and yeah. you like you're you, even if you think the client is receptive it's just completely ethically and morally wrong um So uh, no, it's never happened to me. I mean, I definitely have had the experience of like feeling really strong connections to people Um, and uh, not so much in coaching, but in other self-improvement work where I was Mm -hmm. just like, you know, this is where mindfulness helps. Like it's okay to have the feeling, but you have to like, you have to have the tools to be like, I'm having this feeling. I, I need to you know i need to set it set it aside i need to understand it and and move on like because it's not a feeling to act on there's not a feeling to convince myself that it's okay you know to move to move on or yeah it's funny like i'm not even i think you were asking a romantic question you know it's like something that would lead to sex or whatnot but I, the the story that i'm actually thinking about is now one of my best friends in coaching We were both at esalen hadn't, didn't know each other. And we did this exercise that was just about listening to each other. And at the end of it, I just was like, I love you. I was like, I just met you and I love you. And I'm like, I don't know what this is like, it was not, I'm not saying romantic love. I'm just like, like, I don't know what to, I was just like, this is so freaking weird. Um, And it's just, so then I was like, well, you know, the thing there is then to build an actual friendship. It's not to like to like throw myself at them like and be best friends on day one it's like well okay like there's a connection let's see where it goes um but that was one for me that was just like the feeling was so um like so far and above the um uh the history together you know you know you have this super strong feeling even though you shouldn't yet you know and so those like that's again that's an experience thing and i honestly yeah. i've often wondered like if we should add more to our own training i mean i don't know the habit coach certifications already so like yeah. fundamentally like packed <laughs> but th- yeah, this yeah. is definitely one of the boundary setting things about being a professional coach um yes you know what is flirting anyways except you know, listening to each other and staring into each other's eyes, right? You know, like, yeah, <laughs> that's going on. And, yeah. and you just, you have to be in a different mindset. Always. Yeah. Yeah. So uh,
0: actually, have one, I, I totally resonate what you mentioned. And obviously, because I have had like a little bit of experience in it. And whatever you mentioned that, you know, about connection that obviously yeah. you need to have connection only then the other person is uh, will be yeah. opening up i totally resonate with that and i have a question from Anangsha. so anansha lamyan she's a friend of ours, and she uh-huh. asked me to ask you this question that uh, how do you keep the spark alive when you live with your partner
1: that's interesting you know, in all the interviews I've ever done, no one was really interested in my love life. Um,
0: so it, it's, it's not actually, you know, the angle we, is not about your love life. It's about, you know, like who you as a person, yeah. as someone who has developed all this productivity yeah. mindset tools, how you navigate through everything. Yeah, It's not, you know, like, <laughs> it's not a creepy yeah. thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's just, it's interesting. I mean, it makes sense, right? And you know, I'm so intentional about so much. Uh, Like, why wouldn't this be part of it too? Um, You know, why wouldn't my relationship with Sarah? uh, You know, a word that comes up for me a lot of times with people is permission. And I think this is how we sort of navigated it in a relationship is permission Mm -hmm. for the relationship not to be everything, you know? Like um, we have the luxury of not needing it to be everything, right? Like I don't, again, because we're not, super reliant on each other like we're very self-sufficient people so in our path um instead of thinking like this is my partner in all things it's like this is my partner you know Sarah's my partner in the things in a few things that fit you know that overlap for us so like we love New York City we love culture we love certain friends we love dogs we love uh, projects. Like we loved renovating our apartment. We loved renovating a house we're working on right now. Um, We love TV. We'll sometimes carve out a Saturday afternoon slash evening and watch three seasons of television. Uh, (laughs) And like there's plenty there, right? Um, I do not love modern dance. I like it. There's good modern dance here. We have a friend who's one of the top modern dancers in the world love to see her dance, at least I love to see her dance once a year um, and support her. And I'm like very impressed with her. I don't wanna go more than once a year though. And I usually go twice a year, maybe. Uh, Sarah could go once a month, right? And and mm-hmm. so the don't be all thing, you don't have to be all things to each other. It doesn't mean because I don't love modern dance that she can't love it, right? She just goes with other people. And same, uh, Sarah likes a comfortable bed, Sarah, you know, like once a good night's sleep is important to her and is more sensitive to the kind of the quality of the environment. So Mm -hmm. Sarah's not going to be backpacking with me, but I love backpacking. And so, Uh uh, you know, like um, I've been in the Grand Canyon before the pandemic, going to uh, the Tetons here in uh, Montana in September. Uh, I've got other friends to go backpacking with. And I'm not, like, there's no part of me that resents Sarah for not caring about backpacking. She's not a mountain biker. Uh, We bought an RV. I love the road life. I think that she will, you know, like if I spend 30 days in the RV a year, I'd be happy. I bet she would spend four days in the RV. Mm. So we're just, you know, we'll be separate. And we've always kind of had that, um, you know, kind of, a relationship that i think worked for um you know strong-minded independent people and, and if i'm not wrong yeah.
0: communication is probably one of the parts that's like really like a big prerequisite to having what you have
1: yeah for sure i mean this is something i remember when i before i met her and i was dating i had a good friend who was 30 and she told me she's like oh you know date and she my friend was single too and she said Oh, you know dating in your 30s gets so much better because finally everyone can communicate and what she really meant is like people are just finally able to say this is what i want out of a relationship like out loud say uh. this is what i want and when you can say that if the person's capable of giving it to you then they actually give it to you and you're not like passive aggressively hoping for it or um or they won't give it to you and you know that early on and you move on right and in your 20s it's like you're all you have First of all, you don't know what you want yet. You don't have the, you know, you don't have the stones to even ask for it. And, <laughs> uh, and, and so it's just like a mess of bad communication. So, yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of, um, it's funny to like even talk about communication. It's like, basically there's a lot of bad communication, which we then work hard to rectify, right? Like, it's not like, <laughs> You're a good communicator and so you always understand each other the first time it's that you're more that you have a mindset of committing to do the work to get to the point where you understand each other and you don't just like throw your hands up when you have misunderstood each other i mean we you know like we carry the baggage of our childhoods we um uh we have different um just different ways of of being and thinking and you know, different blind spots. And so we're always, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, misunderstanding each other and, uh, you know, working, just working through that. But I mean, that goes back to like, just foundationally, I think we basically trust each other to work. And um, uh, I'm really grateful for her that, you know, she, I think, yeah. I mean, that, I just think that's an amazing foundation that I just, I wake up not worried um, mm. because, uh, yeah, I think I just imagine and I know a lot of people have relationships that, where there's a lot of anxiety about whether or not it will work. I, I wake up with frustration, but that's different, you know, like, hey, this is ro- broken and I need to fix it, but I'm never worried that we won't be able to, you know.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. That was a lot of intimate details. Um, yeah. if, if we talk a little about your, you know, career, uh, when did that shift happen when you, uh, you know, was, when you were employed and then you made a decision of becoming self-employed? Was it like an overnight
1: decision or how was it? Um, it was a really expensive decision. Uh, I didn't know it at the time though. Uh, so I was the, um, the VP of engineering for a startup that was doing a podcast directory. A startup was called Odeo. And um, mm-hmm. Evan Williams was the CEO uh, I had a team of engineers working for me. One of those engineers was Jack Dorsey. So in the entrepreneurial startup world, uh, Av started Blogger, which at one time was like the seventh most popular website on the entire internet. Then he started Twitter, which also at one point was one of the top 10 most trafficked websites on the internet and now he's running Medium. And then Jack Dorsey, Twitter was his idea and Square is, is uh, was his company as well, and so they, these two mega successful people were on that team. But what we were doing at the time was failing left and right, and the team like really hated each other. I remember, I remember like uh, there's one guy I really wanted to have fired. I was just like, this guy is terrible for the culture. He's not getting his work done. He's not good at his job, and. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I went to that guy's boss and I said, "You know, can we just we don't need him? Like, can we just push this? Can we get rid of him? Like, no." And and the the other manager he said, "I'll fire I'll fire that guy if you fire this other guy." And he pointed at one of the people on my team. Who I was like, part of me was like, "Oh, I see your point. That guy has also a problem." Uh, but I hate like it's I hate the idea of trading. You know like favors around firing people is like is yeah. so her, like horrific if, if you see the video i'm like smiling i'm smiling because this is shockingly scary and bad right like this <laughs> idea of like trading but and i was just like people on their merits and i'm saying like this case of this person they shouldn't be here and let's then separately let's talk about this other person and so we just didn't get really but like that's the kind of environment we're in or like i had one employee that made another employee cry and then in the one-on-one that employee was telling me how happy he was that he made you know and but we didn't have enough direction to really say uh like change the team it was like give us direction and then we will like we will staff according to that direction. But without mm-hmm. the direction, it was hard to make those sorts of decisions. And so we just had this super toxic team. And what I, you know, I tend to say about it is, I would work with any one person, except for that person I wanted to fire. I would work with any one person, but not any two people. Because for the most part, if you pick two people there, they weren't getting along. But any mm-hmm. one person was nice enough on their own. And I was so burned out on it and I stayed, you know, long enough that we had launched Twitter at that point, but had like 200 users and, I, you know, I helped them pick like, here's, here's the subset of the team here that should go along and that will mm, help you it. build this, this product. But I was just like, I cannot be here. And, um, and I think at that point I was like, here's yet another example of, I did good enough work but my work is not gonna matter. Like this podcast directory, no one uses it and you're probably gonna shut it down. Why was I so stressed out over the last seven months? I've accomplished nothing. And you know, technically I facilitated a situation where we experimented our way to Twitter and like played some role, like Twitter would not exist. And Twitter would not exist without my management or someone doing management like what I did. It was just, mm-hmm. we, they never would have gotten to the point of even do, running that experiment. So, I mean, there was impact, but from how I felt that day, I felt like there was none. And I, I think that was like, that was the moment where it just sort of like, um, uh, like I just have to be in control. And that's, I started that's when I started like kind of building things on my own. I didn't know, I wasn't clear with myself about mission. I just wanted to know, mm. can I build stuff that people will use? And I, I mean, I knew nothing. This wasn't sales I kn- uh, 2007.. 2007. Yeah. I'd never done marketing. I honestly, I'd never done product design. All I'd ever done was like build things according to someone else's request. So it was a big learning curve. I started a company that ended up making social network software. And then we found a, a clientele and conferences. So they were just like they played the role of this like super social attendee directory. And we made a living doing it. Um, we made a living doing it. But if I had just stayed at Twitter and been a middle manager, uh, I think my stocks at the I, my stock options at the IPO would have been worth, I don't know, probably 20, 40 million dollars. Um, That's a lot of money, right?
0: I get it. That's why I say it was
1: was very (laughs) expensive. (laughs) I think, I mean, honestly, uh, I had less than a year's salary saved away when Twitter IPO'd. So it's like I'm looking at my savings and and then Twitter, and I'm just like, wow, like I'm nowhere near being able to retire. Like, if I, I have to, like, hustle or I won't be able to retire when I'm 70 meanwhile if I had just stayed and been this like middle manager um would have
0: been but you know these are these
1: things like life works out yeah
0: that that would have been an easy thing to do you know like uh staying where you are yeah but would that be enjoyable and you know like would have made you happy
1: Well, this is, you know, one of the, the benefits of confirmation bias is like, you know, we convinced ourselves that what happened was right, right? And so the <laughs> word confirmation bias has like literally allowed me to truly believe like at an emotional level is that I'm a better person for not having stayed, that I'm a more complete person. You know, it's like, I, I, I do feel that I would have been like frozen in time. Like if you gave the version of me that, you know, millions of dollars said you never have to work again, I'm not sure that I would have kept developing. And so, you know, essentially I would have been, uh, you know, a spoiled overgrown teenager, you know, it's like what I cared about was watching sports and playing video games and writing code. And I just hadn't developed much more beyond that. And uh And I don't think that the Twitter experience would have really grown me. I think for the founders of Twitter, they grew a lot. But if you're just a middle manager inside of a hot company, it's really stressful, but I'm not sure that it transforms you the way that running your own business transformed me. And, you know, then, you know, like I was able to find a, a calling too. Like I really was able to finally get some congruence between what am I interested in? What has an impact in the world that I'm, proud of, and also allows me, you know, to be high enough in Maslow's hierarchy that I'm not worried about my own selfish goals, you know, like, I don't need to own a yacht. But if I'm worried about paying rent, then I'm not the most uh, generous person in the world, right? So it's like, you know, it's like, I'm comfortable enough that I can feel comfortable, really being very mission driven, and being very like very curious you know i like i love my work not just because of the impact but also because it's interesting and i didn't i it took me a while to find that i mean i i started this company when i was the i did an experiment that turned into this company i started working on that probably when i was 31 i'm okay 43 now sorry right? uh uh i was 32 i think when it like okay like kind of the, the idea really crystallized for me and it took a while to mm-hmm. bring it all to fruition but it was 32 when i like felt really like my life started coming together you know and that wouldn't have happened i would have i would have been financially comfortable but i think pretty lost still if i had stayed at twitter yeah
0: and uh Okay, so here's a question that I wanted to ask you, like from myself, uh-huh. and maybe not that I would want to ask, like this. Dipanshu would would want to ask you, but maybe a Dipanshu of two years earlier would want yeah. to ask you. Uh, so I know where I am right now and where I'm heading. Like for the next three to five years, I have a plan, like where I want to go or this experimentation yeah. that I want to continue, being a life coach having courses, group programs, so on, 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 all that stuff. And I know it's going to take me three to five years. So a bare minimum of three to five years, I am in this profession. I don't know what happens after that, but at least till yeah. then I'm, I'm in this profession. Right. Uh, but uh, let's say somebody from India or Asia or other, you know, like second or third world countries, they want to develop skill sets or they know English quite okay or they have one okay you know uh, skill set like let's say i had in content writing or digital marketing i was not really world class sure, right. marketer but like good enough so so that i can at least uh, i can start something like i can help some mm-hmm. people in the marketing area and all that stuff uh, how could they maximize their I don't know, maybe network or what are their opportunities for them, so they could, you know, really grow in their career in terms of money as well as in terms of opportunities.
1: And this is, I think, where it's helpful. You know, your adva- You know, there's a disadvantage, which is um, that you know maybe your kind of in-person network is not. Um, that developed right and first of all it's not just about being in india it's your age right like uh, yeah know, we talk about like sales channels it's like one one of the channels that works for coaches is to become a business coach in your 30s or 40s after being successful in business you know what i mean it's like at that point you have you have ready clients and then if you do a good job those clients will turn into referrals and a lot of times you keep your business job until yes. you have enough clients which is you know basically how Kendra did it where it's like yeah. she was a CEO like for f- 5 years before the like before she really had unlimited referral business you know yeah. um so you know you're trying to manufacture something that like doesn't exist. the reason it doesn't exist is because you haven't existed professionally long enough right yeah. Yeah. um i but then that you have this advantage, the, you know, your economics are different, right? Yes. Like you, it you, and it, it basically, it creates all this free time for you, or like you have the the option of having like productive, non-coaching hours, right? Where it's like, you know, when a new coach only has three clients, they're freaking out, right? But, you know, if you had, Three four hundred dollar a month clients. I I mean I don't not to speak directly to your your financials, but like yeah, knowing some people's financials in in India, it's like your rent and food is paid for, right? And so now you're meeting. You've got uh, you know ten hours a month of client work, including prep and review and the actual session. Well. Well, now you could put a content business in place, or now you yeah. can like you can be active, like you can come to every one of my office hours, and uh, you know you can do slower developing things, or um, because yeah. you have less financial pressure, and you know like you know try to run your playbook while living in New York City, you
0: mm-hmm. know it's just not
1: going to work. Yeah. You're going to be flipping out. You you would have. A side business here. You would or like you would have a full time job here just to make rent, you know. So um, I, I think that's like kind of. I mean, this is business advice, right? It's like you, yeah. like play, like understand the systemic advantages and disadvantages, and plot accordingly. And uh, so you know, like you, you have the advantage of time in a way that other people don't have. And I I think for the most part, like our community has allowed you to really thrive and excel and that, like a lot of people know who you are and it's the, you know, I think it's on us to make that more um, lucrative for you or, um, but uh, yeah, I mean.
0: So I I want to actually ask, you know, like let's talk in context of non-coaches people, like who are not coaches Uh, Like, let's say who I was three years ago, I was a digital Uh marketer, a content writer, and I was just growing. I had enough uh, experience so I could write uh, an average kind of a blog post or I could set up your, optimize your profiles or start some kind of content, like for any business. Uh, At that point, so let's say someone is at that point where they're just starting out in their career. They're not coaches, but let's say they're in marketing or some other field. Uh, how could they maximize their opportunities?
1: what is it that they're, they're trying to achieve? They're starting out in a career and they want to be successful in that career?
0: Let's, let's uh, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Because what um, I understand is, so if you're doing a job in India, a lot of average sized jobs are usually like, let's say, I don't know, $300 a month and this uh-huh. sucks the light out, life out of you. Like you have to work <laughs> nine right. hours a day and, you know, like five days or six days a week versus if you could just intern for someone abroad, you could earn uh-huh. $300 with so much less amount of work. Yeah. But the question is how do you uh- cross that barrier that that's, you know, like something I'm interested in knowing about your perspective, like,
1: I I kind of want to pass on this one. I feel like I okay. like if I answered, I wouldn't. I'd be uh, guessing too more than I mm. more than I'm comfortable with.
0: Okay, sure. Maybe I'll I'll uh, come in again with some detail around this question, and you'll be yeah. more comfortable in asking that. Let's talk yeah. about another product that you have that I'm a really huge fan of. Is your 12 month long heavy mental training? I love it. Yeah. And it, it it's see, just some... I'm
1: wearing a, a shirt that says heavy mental on it.
0: Yeah. So it says sleep is the best meditation because sleep is the yeah. current module. Yeah. So <laughs> right. uh, So even before meeting you, even my courses were, you know, like exact how you have done your heavy mental, like, you know, yeah. delivering them some text-based yeah. introduction every day and giving them like a five or ten minute kind of a right. job to do.
1: Yeah. And... Yeah.
0: So there are 13 modules, right? Meditation is one of them, sleep, stoicism, um, annual review is last. And then there is interstitial. Uh, what, what, what's that, journaling?
1: I, I misdread. I mean, there's too many to remember, but it, it's, there's um, one big change, which is like New Year's resolution module, yes. uh, set morning routine, set priorities, uh, interstitial journaling, sleep uh habit breaking so basically we guarantee every year that you create one new habit and you break one habit um mm. uh self-talk stoicism meditation um uh i just think of it as the checklist manifesto but yeah, uh, yeah. sort of personal operating manuals and then annual review there's also it didn't count as i went but i think that's yeah soft talk is in there yeah yeah
0: so Um, one thing i really love about it is it's only twenty dollars a month which is really affordable for anyone who wants to afford it like yeah even in third world countries twenty dollars is not a lot to pay based on the you know benefits they're going to get right and i'm selling it because i have received the benefits of it and then again it's uh, like kind of sponsored for me because I'm a coach at coach.me. So that's a, also a plus for it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, tell me if you um, had to,
1: yeah. Well, what's the question? I First of all, I mean, I okay. love. I want to get you on tape. I mean, you could be the pitch person for it. But <laughs> I, what, um, so I love that. Great. Check. I agree um now what do we want? what <laughs> do you have a question about it
0: yeah so the question is uh if, if we have to talk a little because i want you know you to talk about it a little because i have not seen you talking about it almost anywhere because i have seen you marketing it like it seems like it's not on your well. priority list that that's what i've seen so far yeah
1: you know, I'm involved. I, I'm involved in a lot of different things, and they sort of for different reasons. And yeah, sometimes they, um, uh, you know, sometimes they have um, business goals that aren't obvious, right? Like, mm. and heavy mental is one where I just felt like I I couldn't build tools for coaches if I wasn't personally somewhat aware I'm not, I'm not a good there's a lot of ways to be an entrepreneur there's a lot of ways to build products yeah but I'm not a great researcher like I don't learn a lot by like interviewing people and then building something based on the interview I, so much of my inspiration or insight comes from hands-on experience which then I kind of have to mold through experience with customers but if I'm not kind of hands-on, I find yeah. it's just really hard for me to be creative. So I got really scared that if I didn't have some hands-on kind of experience helping people change their lives that I couldn't actually build tools for coaches. And so mm. I like the reason you don't see me overly promote heavy mental is because it's not, the, the point of it is not to make the money. Like, it's not where, like, yeah, it's not the main profit center of, mm. and in fact, you know, we run this platform, a coaching platform, Coach Me, which does, you know, bring in potential clients and then coaches. And so the coaching side of that platform, uh, the profit center, which I love, is because it's a win-win. Like, we were really yes. just kind of philosophically, we want to make money when the coach makes money. And so what's ended up happening is there's parts of the company where we just way undercharge, like so much less Mm -hmm. than anyone else would charge for this. Like, but then (laughs) there's this one part of the company where we like charge a lot. Like the coaching directory for coaches is a profit share. And it's like, it's a healthy profit share because you know what? It's hard to get clients to a coach. And, but if you do it, it's a huge win-win, right? The coach yeah. is happy the client's happy, we're happy. And so all of the profit in the company is in that and because we're clear on that, I can do stuff like say like uh, I want to train you as a coach at cost. I, I don't like so many other coaching businesses are based on the idea that I'm going to train you for like five, you're going to give me $5,000 or $12,000 and then I'm going to train you, but I'm not responsible for whether or not you got a return on investment. Right. It's just, there's, and that feel always felt like a disconnect to me. I think a lot of these trainings are great, but it, for me, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work for me because yeah. I would be, I would spend the entire training anxious that, uh, you weren't going to get your money's worth. You know, like I could give the best training in the world, but if I can see you're not going to turn that into a business, like I would just be like shaking. I'd be like, let me give you, like I got to push you out of the class and give you your money back because you're never, this is never going to work for you. You know, and I just don't want to be in that position. And so we do these certifications that are, like so top-notch, right? Like like Kendra's certification, like the training she gives us the instructor, so hands-on, so detailed, so informed because we have this huge background in what we're teaching there. Uh, and then we bring in a keynote speaker, you know, it's like, and it's like, congratulations, uh, graduates. Here's Gretchen Rubin to talk directly to you and tell you what, you know, how great you are. Who is your keynote speaker? Uh, George Monfort. Leo? Oh, George Mumford, great. Yeah. It's like, hey, this guy used to uh, like um, Michael Jordan loves this guy and you will too. Here's George Mumford, right? Yeah. And, you know, people paid $350 for that certification. It's because like Kendra and I are not, this is not how training you is not how we want to get rich. Like, like, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not even like rich is like I already said, is not the primary goal. Like, yeah. But I feel super comfortable making a huge profit by doing matchmaking through the coaching directory. It's like, it, it's just a really straightforward win-win. If, you know, if coaches, if it's too much of a cut, then the coaches just won't be in the directory, right? So it's like, yeah. we know, like everyone is like, gets, you know, get something good in that. And, uh, and so then I'm able to build all these other tools for coaches and clients and not feel like, uh pressure to take someone's money and that and so heavy mental is sort of in that where it's like yeah i'm charging because if i don't charge people i just get the wrong people but i'm mm-hmm. not yeah like it's not it, like it makes a few thousand dollars a month but it's not the thing where i'm thinking oh this has to make a hundred thousand dollars a month right yeah and and so then i get this incredible the benefit to me is this other thing which is i feel credible Like, I know when I'm talking to another coach Mm. that uh, they know some things that I don't know, but I also know that I know things that they don't know, or I I like, and more importantly, I can parse what they're saying because I have hands-on experience. Like, when you're telling me about your tactics, I'm like, ah, I see why that's important. I see why that that works. It's much easier for me to talk to you because there's some amount of peer relationship, and that um, like, I don't, I don't need to be anyone's, like, especially for a coach, I don't want anyone to think that I know more than them. But I want them to understand, like, like, let's talk this out as peers. And because mm-hmm. I'm really curious about learning, and, and I will be able to, you know, basically understand what you're telling me, because I do have enough experience to, to get what you're what you're doing. So the problem, the, you know, sort of how do I get that experience is, I just, too much like one-on-one coaching is like really time intensive you know and so I don't do a lot of it in a given year um some but not a lot of it and that's why uh you um anyway so that's sort of like heavy mental kind of just plays this research and curiosity role that's really important but if you're just looking at it being like that's a weird business decision it's like yeah because it's not (laughs) It's not a business, you know, it's not it's not the business. The business is it's, it's coaching a, directory.
0: It's actually a research that it that's paying for itself, probably.
1: Yeah, right. And that's so, it. I like I like for things to pay for themselves. That's important to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm the kind of person who really loves recommending things to others. Like, you know, if I yeah. try so that has been my pattern since the beginning, since my childhood, that yeah. I try something, I'm really curious. I want to experiment yeah. something like I'll experiment my sleep. Yeah. I'll be an early riser all I'll be, you know, like a night owl and all that stuff. And yeah. I would want to share results with you. And I see that I haven't really shared or recommended this heavy mental training enough so far, but maybe I can put up my referral and start promoting it a little
1: Yeah. I mean, that said, it's like the intention is for it to be very powerful. It's just not, uh, it's not set up to be a great business but it is set up to be a really great product. I mean, every year yes. I revise it based on what I learned in the prior year. And that's like, that's the kind of the learning and curiosity is like, here's the thing that, um, that I can really polish every year in order yeah. to be as good as possible, to always be pushing myself to be better at, uh, you know, at creating vehicles for change. Um, but I think I mean, it's- a Like, you should promote uh, it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what's one module that you see that impacts the most to anyone who is going through the whole, you know, 12-month program?
1: Self-talk. This And this Mm. surprised me um, because it was one of the last modules that we developed. So we had people that had been through all of the modules twice already before they said self-talk. And, and the point of the self-talk model, module is to train yourself, first of all, to catch your self-talk. I mean, most people aren't really aware of the degree yeah. to which they're muttering to themselves about how much they hate themselves and how they keep failing and whatnot. Um, and uh, um, and then t- once you've caught yourself to train yourself in how to think, how to talk differently about yourself. And the kind of the problem with negative self-talk is that it ends up limiting you. It ends up paralyzing you and it ends up yeah. feeling bad. And yes. again, this like kind of related to the no shame. You don't have to feel bad to achieve things. Like there's a fear. Cause I mean, this is like the, the immature source of energy for self-improvement is yeah. shame and anger. And, and so, and then some of those people use the, that, that tactic to get to be very successful, um, but uh, this is a, like this is one of those—the thing that got you there will not get you here. Like there's a higher level, and that higher level involves removing the shame and the fear and the anger. Those end up being blockers, and so it, it, you know initially they motivate you, but you can't believe that they'll take you all the way. You have to drop. It's like a booster rocket. It's like so, at some point you drop it off, or you let it fall away, and. Yeah. Um, so, so interestingly, uh,
0: yeah.
1: just, just before you,
0: I invited Paul Cahill from our, you know, coach.me, uh, community, yeah. uh, he, he graduated, I guess the last cohort as a habit coach and yeah. his coaching was, uh, taking ownership. So he calls himself ownership uh-huh. coach. And yeah. when he needed some beta tester, I was, you know, like one of his clients, uh-huh. I worked with him for six weeks or so. And, uh, taking ownership is again basically on a habit level you have to go on the self talk and everything right and yeah. how i connect with it with your whatever you have uh, you know mentioned in your writings and other work is from the six gates model uh, it fits in the identity model and because i have you know like mm-hmm. again i have taken inspiration from your open gates model and yeah. i have like elaborated in my trainings and all that stuff and Whenever I uh, work on the identity part, that identity is, you know, like one sixth of you, the way you, you know, identify yourself. And the only way to get better at it is the self-talk.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, I mean, one of the real tricks of self-improvement is that a lot of it is kind of in your head. Right. And the stuff that's in your head is really hard to get at. You know, this is get to go back to why advice doesn't work. Right. Yeah. The problem is not lack of information. You know, it's like you can't tell a smoker that smoking is unhealthy and think that that's going to work. Right. Like yeah, they know it's unhealthy. <laughs> There's other problems. It's not just more information. And so I think we're often really trapped thinking we're blocked by not having the information. But no, we're blocked by so many other things. And yeah, I mean, self-talk can be one of them. And just the feedback we got from people is just being able to see that and like have the tools to reroute it, to change it, to be someone who's your own cheerleader, who like believes in yourself and talk, you know, it, it feels so good, but then it leads to good things because, you know, it opens up, you know, action and it uh, leads to results and, uh, yeah, people have been really pleased with that of all the modules. Yeah.
0: So that's, you know, something that, uh, so in my dictionary, I literally hate the word have to, like, I have to uh-huh. do this, like, mm-hmm. you don't have to do anything. Like you may have to breathe. You need to breathe, but have to is like a really big limiting, uh, sense in itself uh and and you know like if we circle back to the conversation we had about marketing it comes to the same thing you know like i have to do marketing versus i want to do marketing because it's my moral obligation or it's a responsibility right and that's empowering in itself so uh self-talk is one of them and have you by the way any time uh like made a reference to uh all the 12 modules in accordance to your open gate six, uh, like open six gates uh, theory.
1: Like sort of merge them. Um, No, I mean, we sort of, you know, sort of the idea behind the open gates is that all six gates have to be open in order for someone to succeed. And what's commonly the case is that two or three are closed. And that's why this like one trick uh, Uh, advice never. Yeah just to work, get in right? the
0: context I just kind of remembered that a lot of people might not be aware of you know the open gates model so
1: right. can you briefly so that's describe my, it like, my, that's my quick sort of the genesis is understanding why why you're giving like why you give someone a good vehicle and it still doesn't work well it's because the vehicle only addressed one of the gates and the person needed you know this other one opened at the same time so the gates model like came from this prior work uh, logical levels but it was that was used for something different in this I wanted to kind of reframe it for a specific the specific concept that you're going you're often going to have to address two or three things in order to get someone to to get where they're trying to go and so the gates are um, your environment the which is you know the physical things but we often put your spouse and the people around you as part of your environment your habits like do you ha- are you able to have consistency around something? The word we use is capacity, but it it also involves like skill is one of the most common capacities. Like, do you know how to do this or not? Um, And then the last three are technically all variants on belief. There's belief, identity, and mission. Belief is belief about the outside world. Identity is belief about yourself. Mission is belief about what's important. And so, I mean, just like kind of to get at those higher levels, an example of where mission comes into play is Every year, New Year's resolutions pop up, and people say, I want to do X, right? I resolve to do X, and then they fail. Like, the media loves to talk about how often they fail. But here's, I think, by far the most common reason they fail is, when you say, like, I would like to do an Ironman triathlon, you say that on January 1st. How much, how many hours of training does it take to get to an Ironman? That's like run a marathon, bike a hundred miles, swim three miles, like all equally, like it's like kind of the athletic equivalent of three back-to-back marathons. Um, We're talking about hundreds of hours of work and the pain that comes with it and whatnot. And you might like, so if you set one of these goals, you don't know for sure how, how hard it's going to be. You don't know for sure um, you don't know for sure what other opportunities are going to come up. So the way that mission then becomes a conflict is that your boss might come to you and say like, Hey, it's going to be a lot of work this year, but you can make VP if you do, if you take on this project. And then suddenly you're like, I'd way rather be a VP than do an iron man. Screw the iron man. Right. And so why did you fail there? Well, the mission gate wasn't open. And then you kind of have to, knowing that, you have to decide, well, should I have opened it? Should I have said career is not as important as this? But, you know, like that's what failed there had nothing to do with, was the training plan right? You know, did you have the right equipment? Did you have access to the right bike, the right pool? None of that stuff was important. What was important is that the work required conflicted with your other goals. And you didn't know that up front. And because you never sorted that out, you ended up, failing and so like we just like i would talk to people all the time where we're just we've solved one thing i gave you a free gym membership but now you go you walk into that gym and you don't know how to use the equipment that's a capacity mm-hmm. issue you don't have the skill right that um it's never that simple and we needed a way to dig into it so that's what open gates was and what we find with each module is that uh that people like Different gates are most likely to be closed,
0: so mm-hmm. we're not
1: like so yeah. we're like I always have that in the back of my mind when we go into a module of like, hey, we have to make sure to open these, um, but you know it's like like the gates is a a module for understanding success or is a method for understanding success and failure, and the and the heavy mental is a actual set of goals around mental practices, and so the way that you apply those is like each practice you're like, all right we got to open all the gates as we go through this this module. And so sometimes we talk a lot about the open gates in a module and sometimes Mm -hmm. like hardly at all, you know.
0: Got it. And uh, according to you, because, you know, like you are so much in depth of uh, this self-help industry at the moment, uh, what do you think is like the most underrated skill a person can have for, you know, their personal uh, development? it's going to be contextual i totally understand but uh, i also understand that you have seen a lot of patterns
1: i mean <laughs> you have to i mean you have to love the process you have to love the journey right that probably the clearest way this comes up is when I do New Year's resolutions with people. This is a time when I do do a lot of one-on-one coaching sessions. They're short, but because they're so focused, short is okay. And so I'll often do like 50 sessions in January, like 50 different people. And the people that are going to fail, which we try to like work them out of, the people that are going to fail have defined their resolution in terms of an outcome. And What really makes it scary, not scary, I mean, look, failure is, again, failure is a strong word, but it's also okay. Like failure is normal. I failed, uh, I don't know, I had a day Friday where I I failed in 15 different things in a row and I was pretty frustrated with it, but like failure happens, you know? And the, oh, it's like they've defined an outcome for their new year's resolution and they're tell- saying, I need this outcome. It's like, this outcome or bust. And, you know, it's like, um, I'm thinking of a kind of a sad one. It's like, like I need a new job, so I have the money to leave my husband or something. You know, it's like, I'm stuck. Mm-hmm. And I ha- there's a, sl- like, but, I mean, you can kind of make it a little more hyperbolic. It's like, I, I have an unhappy marriage, and so I need to win the lottery. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, that, I understand. Yeah. what what, is there a different strategy we can use here that actually like puts you in control gives you the driver puts you in the driver's seat and so a lot of times when you think that way you you're like you are playing a lottery because you're like latching on to these like silver bullet kind of tactics rather than just say like listen to start a business requires three years and in order to be Either I shouldn't, and I should just like be a career person, or I need to take down my cost of living. I need to like really prepare myself to, you know, like uh, to do the work. And I think you know, in general, like in all things, people that care about the process, they have more fun, they have more success. Every day is more enjoyable. Um, they actually make progress more quickly. Um and uh um and they have just way emotionally a much smoother ride. You know, there's not there's not anxiety about the outcome, there's not so, as much social comparison. Um you know so that's if, if that's I the thing.
0: If I have to put in my language, you know, like the words I would use. Uh, sure. are you were you talking about uh, you know, like process based goals versus outcome-based goals?
1: Yeah. Yes, Got that. It.
0: So that, instead I mean, of you know, uh, instead of having an outcome like I want to lose uh, ten kgs this year, uh, instead of having yeah. an outcome-based goal, it's better to have a, a process-based goals, like I want to work out uh, twice a week or thrice sure. a week.
1: Yeah, I mean, but it's subtle, right? I mean, this is again, people want things to be simple, right? Like this is why I'm always saying more work than you want, less than you fear. Um, Well, what prompts the process? What prompts the process is that you have an outcome-based goal, right? And so what I'm saying is, like, you have to be attached to the process. Like, the process has to make sense to you. It has to be the primary thing that you're judging yourself on. Did I follow the process? And on a day-to-day basis, you can't be saying, do I have the outcome yet? If, you're, if every day you wake up and be like, well, have I achieved my outcome? You, you're, going to, you're going to end up abandoning your process and you're going to be miserable and you won't get the outcome. On a, when you wake up, you have to be thinking about the process and you have to feel good when you followed it. A lot of times though, the process you've picked is the wrong process because it doesn't get you to this outcome that you want. And so on a regular cadence, which I would say is weekly or monthly or annually sort of depending, there's, I don't think it needs to be optimized. It's sort of what's sensible. Yeah. you have to look at your process and say, is this the right process? And if it's not, then you change it. Um, but that, like that, it's the it's like the daily judgment around the outcome has to yeah. has to go. But it doesn't go completely. It just gets it gets scheduled, and yeah. um, and so you, you know you adjust.
0: So I have actually uh, a recent experience in this part. Uh, i started one practice like uh, uh so i was in kendra's uh builder coaching business you know cohort for yeah. two months yeah uh and i guess it was like in the last one or two sessions i decided one uh protocol in my whole coaching business that uh, i'll have my client send me a weekly reflection on an email yeah. so it becomes a thread okay yep. and even if we are not talking on weekly basis even if you know like although they are yeah. on you know uh they are on, connected with me on text and all that stuff. Even if we have uh, coaching sessions after 12, 14 days, they'll still uh, give me a reflection on email and we'll see the progress. And it has worked tremendously. So again, as you mentioned, you know, it just does it make sense to you. So uh, one of the clients, uh, she was having that, you know, she's not being able to express herself or express her emotions. Yeah. So like yeah. exactly a month ago, 17th of April, uh, she sent me uh, an, a weekly reflection and she mentioned uh, being able to express my emotions 25%. Right. And so again, you know, like just checking in with yeah. herself, like how yeah, much you check feel? In. And right after one month, it was 75%. Yeah. And so I see, you know, it's that weekly reflection, or as you're mentioning, you know, like yeah. keeping checkpoints or milestones, it's such right. a subtle and such an impactful activity.
1: Right, right. It's important to do both, right? It just says, like, what is the balance? And yeah. almost always people are overbalanced to the outcome and underbalanced to the process. And so that's why your answer is like, what's the thing? It's like successful people have a healthier balance and um yeah uh, i i, mean, I are, haven't yeah good no no go ahead no no go ahead
0: okay so i actually had a, a question that i'm just curious about and just a curious question uh, have you seen any patterns around people who are successful in self-help you know like improving themselves based on their religious beliefs like, are they religious Ooh. or atheist or spiritual or not spiritual? Have you seen any patterns in that?
1: And I'm thinking about one of our coaches, Scott Mater, who uh, does financial planning. And he was one of my coaches. I used him before we bought our apartment. I was like, okay. hey, we want to make a mortgage. And like we need to get our finances in order. And he was fantastic. And then... I mean, this is this is not about Scott at first. This is about the in like in just how rough shape our country is in right now. Like mm-hmm. we're very, like the US is very split. And one of the common ways that plays out is there's there's this tension between the religious and the non-religious over political stuff that then like just drips out into everything else. So Scott like very clearly. Is coming from a religious place and serves mm-hmm. a a real religious customer base. Like it's literally in his um, spreadsheet templates. Include you know potentially tithing money, which is uh, you know a religious practice. And there's other things like just it's kind of subtle. Some of the language he uses that in mostly a Christian, like there's a Christianity to it, right? And yeah. so I've had a hard time uh, suggesting him. To people in my um, kind of like atheist or Jewish like worlds, where there's just like some tension there, and they'll be like, "Well, oh, he's not for me," and I just like, I'm just like, he's the perfect person for you. He's not trying to convert you. There's just a couple lines on the spreadsheet. You don't have to like pay any attention to. <laughs> um, and and also, I'm giving the hugest testimonial. I felt so good after working with him. He's fantastic. It's not just like the exercises are good, like he gets people, he will transform your relationship with finances. And I think he's kind of from like a skill perspective is our best financial coach on the platform. So good. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like, you know, which coach has made me the most money? Yeah, got it. Kend- Kendra has coached the most clients, but I think Scott made me the most money because he got me, he just got my, sh- my shit together. And <laughs> yeah, so I it. never thought about it that way, but it's like, you know, like I love Kendra, but my my bank account loves Scott. <laughs> and um, so <laughs> yeah, I love this guy, right? And, yeah. But I have like a really hard, I have a hard time selling him, Uh, to like kind of from one-on-one relationship. So it's interesting though, because I grew up in a, you know, basically a atheist family or at least agnostic for the most part. And um, so I feel like an outsider, you know, like I feel like an outsider Mm -hmm. and I'm like, you know, having gone through Scott's coaching is probably like the closest I've come. I think like I just sort of noted uh, uh, more community you know, and mm. that, you know, when you're in a community, the community exists to help each other. And yeah. so this, again, like sales is sorting, not convincing, the community will help you sort, right? will help you say, well, hey, you know, like the whole community knows they've got a financial coach inside of them. Yeah. And so everyone who needs that financial coach is going to find their way to yeah. um, to Scott, so that's a very practical answer to what I think you were asking. Like, yeah. does being religious help you be a better coach, uh, uh, or you know, just like know.
0: improve improve yourself, like in self help, like if you're trying to improve yourself, does being religious help you or help you or not? Uh, 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 by the way, uh, so what I have seen because I have studied stoicism for some part, and it. it Kind of is comes natural to me uh, from your writings or your uh, this heavy mental training. I see you as a stoic as well, and because I've been reading textbook Buddhism for some time, like literally textbook Buddhism for uh, monks, I see so much of stoic stoicism being overlapped with Buddhism. So whoever tells me that they are stoic, I kind of believe like they are by default a lot. In themselves a Buddhist yeah have you had any chance you know like studying Buddhism or any other religious
1: no in in our in our sort of like on our team is Terry on the better humans the better humans uh managing editor who's the most kind of like uh has the most experience with Buddhism like okay okay a big um zen practice for a while and uh this is um yeah so for me not and and, you know what you're making me think is like how do you get to a point of having a mission you know like for me kind of like having some sense of like purpose beyond myself i think i had to create that you know and that's where i do i do wonder with people that have a healthy relationship with spirituality that like grew up with it which a lot of people grow up in in a yeah. kind of with a religious background and it's not healthy we're talking about you know some come through it and and it is pretty healthy i mean it would be nice to have that sense of purpose earlier in life you know like i just sort of backed my way into it because i was sensitive to something being missing and so i would improve my lot in life and be like something's still missing and improve it something's still missing and improve it and improve it and it wasn't really till i had that sense of purpose of like do good for find something that does good for other people that also fits who you are as a person and then then you'll like you know you'll feel stable and that was you know it took me like i said till i was 32 till i really you know backed my way into having that. i mean how great would it have been to have that at 22, you know?
0: (laughs) Some people have that at like 15. There are a lot of monks who are like in their teenage years. Yeah. Uh, Okay, just one last personal question. (laughs) Uh, What has been your personal struggle in terms of self-help? Like in terms of something that you have struggled with or even now that you know you see patterns repeating?
1: um there's two um one is um classic i mean there's a book that's essentially one of the big management books uh what got you there won't get you you know what got you here will not get you there right and i thought that's a nice like epiphany when you realize you've been playing to your strengths but now you've capped out and you and your strengths are now your limiters. And I'm a, just a huge improviser. I'm a creative, I'm, it's the creative energy that drives me. And so when I have an insight, like I can be incredibly productive, but without that insight, I'm not really a very good planner or manufacturer of progress. And so as a result, we create lots of things, but then we do often don't do the work. And I think and kind of the size of the business reflects that. Like that is the limit the limitation in the business is the who I am that I will fi- I will find interesting insights but uh, and I'll be you know to give myself credit be very good at that. but then kind of in comparison, the planning that goes into then taking that from interesting to scaling it is you know much much more difficult than me for me maybe more interesting because it's more like self-improvement is uh, when I first was raising money for this company, like when I first was raising from people I didn't know, I was mm-hmm. pitching people on this idea that was interesting and of the moment, is sort of like applying gamification to self-improvement essentially. And yeah. I put together a top-notch team. Like we were going to do it for mobile apps. Mobile apps were hot the prettiest mobile app on the market, this app called Path that people were very inspired by. And I pulled their head of engineering to be my co-founder. And then as initial backing, I'd gotten Evan Williams that right after I left Twitter. And I was like, listen, like it's too, we're very early, but like, if you're just judging on team, I've aced it. Like no one is coming to you with a better like kind of prep kind of thing uh and we just got turned down over and over and over and over again and it's funny that they gave me the feedback or gave feedback through the people that had made the intro but like you know sometimes you get feedback that's not helpful on why they turned you down and yeah it was weird everyone gave the same feedback is they thought i was too weak to be a ceo Mm. like they thought i would just like tip over and oh. like I wasn't able to, I mean, this is like weird pattern matching, but I was just presenting to them very soft and um, it freaked me out. And uh, cause at first I thought, oh, do I have to be one of these hard chargers? Do I have to like turn myself into this super aggressive person? And my, if, if anyone's seen the show Silicon Valley, there's this like section where Ehrlich Bachman, yeah. Is takes over the pitches and it just like gets like over the top aggressive yeah. and it you know, starts so like you know it's sort of like critiquing people's like you know it's just like <laughs> like telling people your ideas suck that art is ugly and like it just like it just like goes so over the top and I was like is that who I have to be and um and it was my executive coach at the time was like well that's not who you are so that's not who you should try to be but there's this other option, which uh, you might try. And he's the one that led me to meditation. And it's why I've become such a proponent of meditation for performance. Because what meditation gave me was a stability. Like I wasn't pushing people. Like I'm not like the kind of person that's really trying out trying to dominate people, but I have such a more stable core of like, I'm not, I guess what they were saying is that not only was I not asserting myself, but also I could be easily pushed over. And now I think that kind of that mindfulness uh, mm. and a lot of other kind of things around it is like, I know what my principles are. I know what's important to me. Uh, like I'll walk into a room and just generally be much, like there's a strength to me now that wasn't there before. And um, I think that's probably the biggest transformation of, um, yeah. I think for a CEO and a guy, that combination of being a CEO and a guy, that I have very little interest in dominating people. That, that I like, I see it sometimes where it's just like people almost have like a subconscious need to get people to do their their bidding. You know, that's like what I mean by like the domination. So it's like. For them, CEO is a good role. You know, it's like, okay, I need you to do this. I need you to do this. And I need to do this. And it's like, they need it. Like, it's not just like, it's good for the business if you do this. But I need you to do this, right? I just, yeah. I almost, I've very, I like. It, once it dawned on me that I don't have that a lot, I like really did this inventory. Like, does that feeling ever come up for me? And basically only telemarketers if I get if a telemarketer gets me on the phone there's some part of me that just like like wants to make them like I suddenly I start caring about yeah being able to impact them usually in a kind of a negative way that um, but other than that I just I don't I don't care and so as a result like I have these things that I think should exist in the world and I'm trying to kind of facilitate my way towards it and I just had to find it a different way to be a CEO, and it started with just myself being much more stable, and then then it's then it's kind of grown a lot into um, knowing when like when to assert yourself and when. I mean, this is a hard thing with being a hmm. leader is you know when do you just facilitate someone and just yeah see where they take it, and then when do you like really dig in and say like hey. this has to change. And I'm going like, there's no choice in it. Like, we're going to go through it together. And I think that decision is a hard decision point. And then the skills are different for for both of them. And that's like, that's a lot of the growth in a leader is being a better delegator of like, hey, here's the guardrails, but within it, do whatever you want. And then also being a, a better better at being effectively assertive, you yeah. know, when I, when I need to be, but like literally I thought I was hot shit and I walked into these investors and they were telling me I was too weak to be a CEO. And that's hard. That's heavy. Usually they just say, we don't like your idea. or We don't think customers will like your idea. Like that, that would be a very polite thing for them to say no. They're just like you, you, you are a soft <laughs> you're yeah. too soft for this job and, I, and I, was just, I remember being really perplexed I was like how the fuck do you think I got this team together you know yeah. by being soft you know like there was i was just it was a very weird moment and like probably a six-month period of kind of transformation that I was really stressed by yeah
0: amazing I did it <laughs> yeah you did it you did it amazingly and um I'm just amazed, you know, so this is something, uh, again, I'm, I know uh, that you don't really enjoy when people confess how much, you know, like they admire you or how much like you have impacted them. <laughs> but then again, sure. uh, this is a kind of a reminder that among those 100 million lives that you have impacted, one of them has been mine in the last six months since I came across coast. Me. Thank you. And I'm just so amazed every time I have a conversation with you. So amazed. Uh, thank you so much for these uh, two hours that you spent in this conversation. I learned a lot. And a part of why I wanted to do all these interviews is just that I wanted to learn first, you know, like people come later. I wanted to learn first. And I guess I did learn a lot. And thank you so much. I'm just glad that you said yes to this.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. I'm... I appreciate hearing that you know I, which is really a we, this big team here um, helped you know helped your life in a way that's meaningful for you. that uh, it feels really good and you know I want you to know, I appreciate you, I really appreciate having you in the community and um, I mean, as I said earlier, I'm sort of um, rudely interested in, who you're going to be in 10 or 15 years, which is a lot of, probably a lot of pressure to put on you. But um, yeah, I could, I'm very curious, like where you go because you have <laughs> so much good about you. So um, yeah, I hope that we continue our friendship and my pleasure to be here obviously, but you know, thank you for thanking me. I, I hear that, thank you.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you so much. And I hope, and we'll see when we can do this again. Uh, For now, it's a wrap-up, and we'll see you again in the next guest interview. Bye-bye.
1: Okay. Bye.